Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Well, hello and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Kenneth Sullivan. Well, today we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as usual, I'm reading in the New Living Translation. So let's jump right into our study and get started here. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, let let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and still do now. For your faith is built on this wonderful message, and it is... Uh, And it is this good news that saves you if you firmly believe it. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, that uh, that Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scriptures said. Now, the heart of the gospel message is that Jesus Christ was born in human flesh and died for our sins on the cross. He was buried, and then he was raised from death on the third day. That's the heart of the gospel message, just as the Old Testament scriptures had foretold. Uh, The horrible death that Jesus suffered was payment for the sins of all humanity. Our forgiveness and our salvation hinges on believing this good news and demonstrating faith through obedience to the teachings of Christ. Now, the first act of obedience is to believe the message, which was preached um, by certainly by the apostle. First, Jesus preached, and then the apostles preached about Christ and His resurrection and His purpose for coming. Um, this should this is what we should believe first that Jesus Christ came and died came in the flesh, and he died, and he rose again. And and then we should ter- certainly repent of our sins. We should turn from our sins. And this should be followed by water baptism, which symbolizes acceptance of the gospel message and identification with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. The faith of some of the saints at Corinth was being corrupted. They were being persuaded that uh, by false teachers that Christ did not rise from the dead, that there was no resurrection at all. And, and Paul clearly understood the critical nature of this attack upon the very heart of Christianity, the heart and soul of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ could be discredited or undermined or destroyed, then the whole Christian faith would unravel, and along with it, the hope and expectation of eternal life for, for believers. This attack prompted Paul to write chapter 15, this chapter that we're studying today, stressing the importance of the resurrection to uh, the faith of the Corinthians, of course, and, and to our faith as well. Paul found it necessary to present a detailed argument for the resurrection of the dead and to explain why this issue is so critical to the Christian faith. Now I'm reading verses five through eight. 
He was seen by Peter and then by the 12 apostles. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died by now. Then he was seen by James and later by the apostles. Last of all, I saw him too, long after the others, as though I had been born at the wrong time. So Paul strengthened the faith of the saints at Corinth by presenting undeniable proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He told them that Peter and all of the other apostles saw Jesus after the resurrection and that more than 500 witnesses also saw Jesus alive at one time. And and most of those witnesses were alive at the time that Paul was writing this letter to the Corinthians. Uh, And they were available to back up his claims. Finally, Paul testifies of having seen Jesus Christ himself with his own eyes many days after the others had seen him. Paul made an airtight case for the resurrection of Christ upheld by the hope of the resurrection for every Christian. Our hope rests in the resurrection of Christ. Now I'm reading verses 9 through 11. For I am the least of all the apostles and I am not worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted the church of God. But what, whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than all the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. The important thing is that you believed what we preached to you. Now, Paul lamented his past life, how he ignorantly worked against God and passionately persecuted the people of God, thinking that he was doing God's work. Um, he was passionate about pursuing uh, uh, Christians and and uh, throwing them in prison and, and testifying and, and having them tortured and all of those terrible things that he did in ignorance. So he's sorry about those things. He did that in ignorance. And then, of course, God opened his eyes and saved him and called him to be an apostle. After expressing his remorse for the mistakes of his past life, Paul realizes that he can't change the past, but he can impact the future. And that's the same for us. We cannot change our past. There's no sense in lamenting over it. What we can do is is impact our future. We can determine to do what is right according to what we know now. Paul determined to show his gratitude to God by using his energy to work harder than all the other apostles, winning souls for the kingdom of God and discipling those souls. But he gives God the glory for everything. He doesn't take glory. He humbles himself and he gives God all the glory. Paul makes it clear that the focus should not be on the messenger, but on the message. The good news about Jesus Christ is the message. Paul said it didn't matter whether the message came from him or the other apostles. The important thing was that the message was preached and that uh, uh, and that they believed it, and that was his reason for rejoicing. Now I'm reading verses 12 through 15. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ was not raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your trust in God is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God. 
Well, we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. So again, some of the saints at Corinth were claiming they had been uh, taught this, influenced by false teachers, and now they were carrying that message. They were claiming that there is no resurrection uh, of the dead. Um, this was a contradiction of what Paul and the apostles had been teaching. Paul showed them the point of the contradiction and the conclusion which would have to be drawn if indeed there is no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. Now, these uh, uh, saints at Corinth had been influenced by the belief of the Sadducees, and the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, and, and so their philosophy had gotten in to the minds and the thinking of the, of the Corinthians. But Paul is showing them the critical nature of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then all the apostles are impostors. Are imposters. And, and, and then he goes on and Paul showed them that if there's no resurrection from the dead, Christ could not have been raised. This would mean that Christ is still dead and buried somewhere. This would mean that the, the apostles would all be liars and the Christian faith itself would be nothing more than a sham, uh, a fairy tale. So Paul is helping them to see that uh, what you're claiming unravels the whole of Christianity. And if, if, uh, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then um, there's nothing. Uh, there is no Christianity, there's no faith, there's no hope, and there's nothing for you to, to believe in. There's nothing for you to stand on. There's nothing for you to look forward to. He's showing them the conclusion of their false ideology here. Now I'm reading verses 16 through 20. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still under condemnation for your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ only for this life, we are the most miserable people in the world. But the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised to life again. Okay, so Paul is letting them know if there is no resurrection as they claim, then everything is pointless. There is no hope. Those who have died in Christ died hopelessly. They are lost. There is no forgiveness of sin. Uh, there, is, there is nothing to look forward to. Now, this point is so important that Paul repeats it uh, to be sure that the message is clear to them. He, he, he keeps going over this. The Corinthians, have, they have to understand that without the resurrection, uh, they're left with nothing. The whole foundation of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead according to the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament scriptures uh, had foretold of the coming of the Messiah, of the Christ, how he would suffer, how he would die for the sins of all humankind, and then he would rise again from death. Now, that's what Paul is preaching, and that's what Paul is impressing upon them. And this is what Paul and the other apostles preached. It was the basis of the faith of everyone who had come to Christ. The foundation of the gospel is that God gave up his son to die for the sins of the whole world and to be raised again. Now, now, Paul is repeating that almost to the point of redundancy. It's, 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 
he wants to get this message across. It's like, you know, I used to teach, uh, I taught school and, and early part I, I had a, uh, I was bivocational and I, and I taught school and pastored at the same time. One of the things that I, I understood about teaching is that uh, uh, repetition. You have to repeat things over and over and over again for the students to get it. And so Paul is using that principle here. He's repeating this, these principles and these ideas, this information, these facts. He's repeating them over and over and over again so that, uh, so that it would sink into their minds. Now, those who seek to appease Christians by saying that Christ was a good man or a prophet, but that he was not raised from the dead, he was not the son of God, they missed the whole point of Christianity. If Christ did not rise from the dead, he could not be a good man. He would only be a false idea and a false hope. Uh, and, and those who believe in him have no hope through him. So there is no appeasement in praising Christ as a holy man while denying his resurrection, the very guts of Christianity. It's an absolute insult for someone to talk about Christ being a wonderful man, but he wasn't raised from the dead. It's an insult. It's a backhanded insult. And, uh, and if it is true, then there is no Christianity. Now, after leading the Corinthians down the path to the conclusion of their claims against the resurrection of the dead, Paul contradicts their argument head on. He says uh, in verse 20, but the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised to life again. So Christ is the first of a great harvest. He's the first fruit. He was the first to rise with a glorified resurrection body that will never die. And, but he is only the first. And, and we will all follow him, those of us who have faith in him. Christ is the model for believers of all generations. The fact that Christ was raised uh, from the dead gives us promise of being raised as well. Christ was the first to be raised with that glorified body, as I just said. But but uh, again, he is the only he's he's only the first. And the Bible says that he will um, have many brethren. So all of us who are, who are Christians, whether you are male or female, uh, we are uh, going to follow Christ in his resurrection. Paul makes it clear that Christ was the first of many who will follow him out of mortality into immortality. Christ was not the first to be raised from the dead, of course. Um, there have been a number of accounts where people have been raised from death before Christ. And Christ himself even raised a couple of people from the dead, uh, possibly more than a couple. Uh, but they were raised in, in mortality. They were not raised in immortality. They were raised mortals uh, just to die again. So he raised them from death, but death caught up with them again, and they eventually died. Everybody who was raised from, from, uh, from, the, from the dead prior to Christ being raised from the dead was raised uh, in their mortal bodies, and death caught up with them again, and they died again. But Christ will never die. And those who, who follow Christ and are resurrected from the dead will never die. They will be uh, immortal. They will be changed from um, perishable to imperishable. Uh, and so that's the hope that we have as the people of God. That's our, when I say hope, I don't mean wish. 
I mean, it's our expectation is because, because that's what the scriptures clearly teach. Now I'm, I'm reading verses 21 through 22. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Christ. Everyone died because all of us are related to Adam, the first man. But all who are related to Christ, the other man, will be given new life. So Paul here compares and contrasts Adam and Christ. Adam disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden and ate the fruit and, uh, which was forbidden. And, and through his act of rebellion and disobedience, he brought death upon every human being. Um, he became mortal. And, and though he lived almost a thousand years, uh, he still died. And then everyone that came from him, every person upon the face of the earth came from this one man, Adam. Adam, and of course, Eve even came from Adam. Uh, and so every human being is connected to Adam. And so because Adam sinned, sin was in his genes. Sin was handed down to all of, uh, all of his descendants and everyone dies. So Adam was the first man. But in contrast to Adam uh, and his sin, Christ came and he obeyed God. And Christ was not born of a man. He was born by the Immaculate Conception. He was born of the Virgin Mary uh, by the seed of the Holy Spirit. And so he avoided the, the uh, descendancy of sin. He was born a sinless man and he died for us. And so as Adam led us into sin and death, Christ, because we connect with him through faith, then uh, uh, he leads us out of sin and death. And so uh, we will be raised with Christ. Uh, we will be raised absolutely sinless and we will live forever. He came to the earth, Christ did, in the form of a man and died on a cross as God commanded him to do. Through this act of obedience, Christ brought the resurrection from death to all who will believe. Christ reversed the work of Adam's disobedience through his work of obedience. Now, when death comes to the believer, it will be reversed by the resurrection from the dead. We might die, our mortal bodies, of course. Uh, uh, we'll die if Christ doesn't come before we die. Uh, but that whole thing will be reversed at the resurrection. Both death and life came through a man. Death came through the man, Adam. Life came, comes through the man, Christ. Adam brought that legacy of death while brought, uh, Christ brought that legacy of life. And everyone who puts their faith in Christ turns to him and asks them to save them from their sins and places their faith in him then they connect to him and they will be raised from the dead. Now I'm reading verse 23. But there's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised first. Then when Christ comes back, all his people will be raised. Paul instructs about the order to the resurrection. Christ was the first to rise. And when he returns to earth, he will, uh, he will raise us up. This not only reinforces the doctrine of the resurrection, but also the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. He is coming again. Whether people will believe it or not, he's coming again. Now, this is the blessed hope, what we call the blessed hope. And again, when I say hope, I don't mean wish. I mean expectation. We fully believe and expect this to happen. This is a clear promise to all true Christians that death is not the end. 
just as we will follow Adam into death, we who believe and trust in Christ will surely follow him into life by the resurrection from the dead. The false teaching about the resurrection compelled Paul to write this letter, carefully explaining um, the, the whole idea of the resurrection from the dead. Now, Christians from every generation since that time have read the epistle of Paul here, this epistle, and had their faith strengthened. Satan meant that trouble in the Corinthian church, that false teaching. He meant it for evil, but God turned it around for good. Because, because of that trouble, uh, Paul had to write and address this issue of the resurrection, sitting it down on paper for us to read generation after generation. He carefully taught the doctrine of the resurrection, and now we have it, just because the devil introduced a false doctrine into um, the Corinthian church way back there 2,000 years ago. Now, that's what God meant when he said, um, all things work together for good. He said through the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to those who are called according to his purpose. So uh, what Satan means for evil, God turns around and he uses it for our good. We have this written word of God to encourage us, to strengthen our faith, and to keep us on track. Now I'm reading verses 27 through uh, 24 through 27. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having put down all enemies of every kind. For Christ must reign until he humbles uh, all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But the scripture says, God has given him authority over all things. Of course, when it says authority over all things, it does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. That's, again, that's verses 24 through 27. The Bible teaches that after the resurrection of the saints, Christ will engage in a battle with his enemies and destroy the wicked with the brightness of his coming. That's 2 Thessalonians 2 and 8. After we have been resurrected, we will stand with Christ as he puts all his enemies at his feet. It is possible that we will participate in the defeat of those uh, who are the enemies of Christ. St. Jude quoted a prophecy made long ago by uh, the prophet Enoch, suggesting that the saints will someday engage the enemies of Christ right by his side. And Jude wrote these words in Jude um, 14 and 15, Jude 1, 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their harsh speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So way back there in the time of Enoch, God revealed that the saints would be with Christ and judge with Christ and deal with the wicked along with Christ. Now, afterward, Christ will reign on earth for a thousand years. You can find that in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, this is referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. After he comes and puts down the wicked and cleans up the earth, he will rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years, and the saints will, will reign with him over this present earth. And at the beginning of his reign, Satan will be locked away in an abyss, a bottomless pit, 
uh, the, the Bible, the King James says in, in the book of Revelation chapter 20. Christ will reign over the earth in righteousness until he puts all the enemies under his feet. Now, the mission of Christ was to rid creation of all wickedness. Since, since the fall of Satan, a third of the angels, and subsequently the fall of humanity into wickedness has come about. The whole creation has struggled under the curse of sin and death since the fall of Adam. All the evils and injustices and, and ills that exist in creation today are the result of Satan's rebellion uh, and Adam's sin. Sin and death and its fruit are the enemies of Christ. Christ came to uh, to the earth to, uh, the first time to deal with every enemy of God by offering his body. And then he's going to come the second time and deal with what is left. His work on the cross marked the beginning of the end for all of his enemies, including death. Now, the curse that Adam brought upon the earth through his sin resulted in sickness and disease and poverty, war, ignorance, racism, hatred, fear, murder, jealousy, addictions, all kinds of unrighteousness, you name it. It, it came from the sin of Adam in the garden when he uh, rebelled against God. And Christ came to earth to destroy these enemies of his creation and create new heavens and a new earth, ultimately, where there is no trace of the curse of sin. At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, Satan will be loose to lead a final rebellion of those who, who rebel against God. And then Satan will be cast into a lake of fire and death will be destroyed. Then the judgment will take place and everyone whose names are not written in the Lamb book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. At this time, God will create new heavens and a new earth. And that is the way that these things will unfold. Now, we don't have the exact chronology of it. Exactly, we can't be dogmatic about exactly how these things will unfold in the order that they will unfold, but the Bible gives them to us. Now, I'm reading verse 28. Then when he has conquered all things, the son will present himself to God, so that God who gave his son authority over all things will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. Now, when the work of subduing his enemies has been accomplished, Christ will subject himself to God as the head of all things. Once sin and death have been eradicated, Christ will create new heavens and a new earth where love and righteousness and goodwill and peace on earth will rule supreme. Now I'm reading verses 29 through 32. If, if the dead will not be raised, then what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And why should we ourselves be continually risking our lives facing death hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those men of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? There's no resurrection, let's feast and get drunk, for tomorrow we die. Now, verse 29 suggests that there was a common practice among the Corinthians for people to be baptized on behalf of their dead uh, friends and relatives. 
who had died without uh, being baptized. Now, there's no indication that Paul approved this. He's not approving of it. He's just making mention of the fact that there was a custom uh, among some people. Because they knew that the resurrection from the dead was true, Paul and the other apostles were willing to suffer and die for it. He holds this up as evidence that the resurrection is true. He's willing to, to suffer all the things that he's suffering, traveling around and preaching and trying to get people to Christ because uh, he is certain that Christ was raised from the dead. Now, using the testimony of the things he suffered, Paul led the doubting saints at Corinth to ask themselves if it was reasonable to think that he would put himself, he and the other apostle would put themselves through so much suffering um, doing all that they're doing if the resurrection was not true. Now, Paul admits that if there were no resurrection from the dead, he would take the easy road. He would abandon his work, take his pleasures, eat and drink and be merry, knowing that um, he was going to die and that death would be the end of all things. But because he realizes that that's not the case, uh, he's giving himself completely and totally to preaching the gospel of Christ. People who rejected the resurrection had a motto in those days, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. These people lived only for the day because they, they believe that once you die, it's over. Now I'm reading verses 33 through 34. Don't be fooled by those who say such things for bad company corrupts good character. Come to your senses and stop sinning. For to your shame, I say that some of you don't even know God. So Paul warned the Corinthians not to be fooled by those who deny the resurrection and live for today. We have those people today who, who believe that you, you, live, uh, you live and then you die like a dog and you go into oblivion. And so grab all the gusto you can. Uh, live life to the fullest because you only live once. And, and, and they, that's how they live their lives. Uh, for pleasure and materialism. But we know that that's not the truth, that there is a resurrection, that Christ is going to come again, and we're accountable to them. So Paul told the Corinthians, because they bought in that, that philosophy, they needed to renounce this sin of unbelief and the other sins and turn to, to Christ. They had, uh, Paul urged them to get back on the right road to Christ for their rejection of the resurrection of the dead um, from that reject, their rejection, because they rejected it, uh, the resurrection, Paul concluded that some of the members of the church were not in the faith. And so that's a stern warning. Now I'm reading verses 35 through 39. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a pl plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a dry little seed of wheat or, or whatever it is you're planting. Then God gives it a new body, just the kind he wants it to have. A different kind of plant grows from each kind of seed. And just as there are different kinds of seeds and plants, so also there are different kinds of flesh, whether of humans and animals, fish, birds, or fish. Now this one uh, graphic descriptive passage is used by Paul in Scripture um, to relate the the future existence of Christians in their resurrected, glorified bodies. Now, until Paul wrote this letter, God had given a very little information about our future existence. Paul gives a detailed description using natural things 
to provide information and insight on the subject of our resurrected bodies. The first question is, how will the dead be raised? And Paul answered this question with the illustration of a seed that, that goes into the ground in one form, but rises out of the ground in a completely different form. The seed is tiny. It is planted in the ground and it decays. It dies and decays, but from it comes a much larger, stronger, capable plant or, or tree, which is vastly different from the tiny seed that went into the ground. Just as God can produce a plant from a seed, he can produce a resurrected body from a mortal body. The mortal body is like, like the seed, Paul is telling us, that's planted in the ground and grows into a plant or a tree. The second question is, what kind of bodies will they have? Paul goes on to talk about the different kinds of bodies in the next few verses. So I'm reading verses 40 and through 41. There are bodies in the heavens and there are bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the beauty of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from one, from each other in their beauty and brightness. So Paul is letting us, he's using the planets and the stars, heavenly bodies, to, to, uh, to illustrate that there are difference in the bodies. Paul is telling us that our resurrection bodies will be vastly different than what they are now. The resurrected saints will be radiant, emanating brightness and brilliance, which will likely be similar to the brilliance that Christ emanated on the Mount of Transfiguration. Although our bodies will be entirely different and the intellectual capacity of our minds will be far greater, we will still be us. We will simply live in new bodies with vastly greater mental and physical capabilities. Just as a butterfly began as a caterpillar, and as a frog began as a tadpole, our resurrected bodies will be a con continuation of our human earthly bodies. Despite the transformation of our bodies, the Bible indicates that we will still know ourselves and we will know each other. That's 1 Corinthians 13 and 12. Now, verses 42 through 44. In the same way for the resurrection of the dead, our earthly bodies which die and decay will be different when they are resurrected, but they will never die. Our bodies now disappoint us, but when they're raised, they will be full of glory. They're weak now, but when they're raised, they will be full of power. They are natural human bodies now, but when they're raised, they will be spiritual bodies. But just as there are natural bodies, so also there are spiritual bodies. So in preparation for our existence in the kingdom of heaven, our bodies must undergo this transformation. Our bodies in their present human form are weak and frail. And as we uh, age, they, they become even weaker and more frail. We run out of energy before the day is complete. We want to do things, but we don't have the energy or the strength to do it. We suffer from sickness and diseases and accidents and injuries. Our eyes grow dim and our teeth wear down. Our bones become brittle. and uh, We just begin to fall apart. By means of the resurrection, our bodies will be transformed from these frail, weak, and powerless natural bodies to strong, powerful, beautiful, glorious spiritual bodies as different from our present bodies as an oak tree is different from an acorn. In verse 44, Paul informs us that there are natural physical bodies, but there are also spiritual bodies that are just as real and tangible as the physical ones. Jesus has a spiritual body. He showed it to his disciples 
He told them to come and feel his body, put their fingers in the hole that the, that the nails made. And he said, uh, a ghost, a spirit uh, does not have flesh and blood like you see that I have flesh and bone. So, so he was tangible. He was solid. He was material. And that's what our spiritual bodies are going to be like. Our bodies are going to be like his glorious body when we're resurrected from the dead or when we're transformed if he should come back before we die. Now I'm reading verses 45 through 49. The scripture tells us the first Adam, the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What came first was a natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from, from heaven. Every human being has an earthly body just like Adam's, but our heavenly bodies will be just like Christ. Just as we are now like Adam, the man of the earth, so we will someday be like Christ, the man from heaven. That's wonderful news. Because Adam, the first man, was created a with a natural physical body, all of his descendants, all of us, have those these natural uh, physical bodies. However, Jesus Christ came into the world in a body which was similar to ours in that it was natural, but different from ours in that it was sinless. Jesus is referred to as the last man or the last Adam because he came to reverse sin and death that Adam brought up on the earth. Through his death and resurrection, he brought life to everyone who would believe. So, so through faith in Christ, every Christian will be re resurrected in a body like his. When we are resurrected, we will bear the image of Christ, just like we are now bearing the image of Adam. Our spiritual bodies will be perfect in every way. We will be more like the superheroes of the comic books and movies than the weak and frail human beings that we are now. We will be a race of perfect super beings with spiritual bodies, just like Jesus's glorified spiritual body. Now I'm reading verses 50 through 52. What I'm saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These perishable bodies of ours are not able to live forever. But let me tell you a wonderful secret. God has revealed to us. Not all of us will die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment in the blinking of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. But when the trumpet sounds, the Christians who have died will be raised with transformed bodies. And then we who are living will be transformed so that we will never die. Uh, now, we can't go into heaven in our natural mortal states now um, in these imperishable bodies. So God's plan is to change us instantly into a state that will allow us to live in heaven. Someday, a whole generation of Christians will suddenly be transformed from mortal to immortal without ever dying. They'll be caught up in the sky in an instant between the blink of an eye without ever experiencing death. A trumpet will sound and the dead saints will be raised first. Then the living, uh, the living saints will be transformed in the blink of an eye. We will suddenly find ourselves with the Lord Jesus, the angels, and a great company of other glorified saints of all the ages. This sudden transformation from mortal the immortality and catching away of the saints is referred to as the rapture of the church. And it could happen at any time now. Now I'm reading verses 53 through 57. Our perishable earthly bodies must be transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die. When this happens, 
when our perishable earthly bodies have been transformed into heavenly bodies that will never die, then at last the scriptures will come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. How we thank God who gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. So at the moment we are changed from mortal beings with mortal bodies to immortal beings with uh, spiritual bodies, the, um, of the uh, scriptures will be fulfilled. That promise that death would be swallowed up by victory. Um, mortality will be swallowed up by immortality. Life will consume death. We Christians will be, uh, were freed from the power of sin and death through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He fulfilled the law in his life uh, of complete righteousness. He then paid the penalty for the sins of all humanity by giving his body on the cross. He paid for our sins with his own blood so that we could stand righteous before God in Christ Jesus. When the resurrection takes place, death will have finally lost all of its power over God's people. We will live forever to enjoy the pleasure and the blessings of our newly, uh, new heavenly bodies in a paradise, which is unimaginable to us now. The will of God will finally be done on the new earth as it is done in heaven. Now I'm reading verse 58. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and steady, always enthusiastic about the Lord's work, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. In view of the great promises of the future, we should keep our future in view. We should constantly remind ourselves that we will be handsomely rewarded for everything, little thing that we do for the Lord. We must stay motivated to the Lord's uh, work, motivated to do the Lord's work, motivated to live like he says to live. We must live in a state of constant expectation because Jesus is coming again and we will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye from mortal to immortal. Well, that brings us to the close of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Next time, we will cover chapter 16 and finish the book of 1 Corinthians. I want to invite you, if you live in the Indianapolis area or if you're ever here, to come visit us at New Direction Church. We're located at 5330 East 38th Street. My son, Kenneth Sullivan Jr., is the senior pastor, and he's doing a wonderful job. Um, we have two locations, as a matter of fact. Uh, 5330 East 38th Street is our, our 38th Street campus, and our north campus is located at 7701 East 86th Street. For service time, visit our website at ndcbetterlife.org. Please join me next week at the same time for another session of Teaching Through the Bible. Until then, may God bless you. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune in to our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. 